You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. For the last few years, uh, the valley to our west has been under development, and, and maybe you've enjoyed coming each week and seeing the progress, as I have. And actually, they started work over there to the west before COVID, so four years ago or so. And for a few years, there was no visible progress. The builders needed to do pre-work to prepare the area for buildings. So they mixed tons and tons of dirt. There were belly scraper trucks that my boys loved, circling those fields over and over and over again, mixing, mixing, mixing. They mixed tons of dirt because of the bentonite clay out here. They changed the contour of the valley. They lowered the hills and raised the depressions to make it easier to build on. They laid miles of infrastructure and piping and uh, those sorts of things in the ground. And these tasks were prerequisites to building. Uh, They're not real fancy. They're not real attractive because you can't even see most of it, but they're absolutely vital to being able to build over there. Without this pre-work, the construction couldn't take place. The construction that you see there are homes now in two neighborhoods being built up. And in a lot of ways, that's how Paul constructed his letter to the Colossians. Verses 1 through 23 of chapter 1 really are the the groundwork or the pre-work to lay the foundation for the key arguments later in the letter. And this is incredibly important, these verses, as we've seen, that Christ is preeminent, that he's our redeemer and our reconciler. There's a lot of wonderful truths in here, but in the flow of the book, these truths are going to lead to the main points of the letter. And the main points of the letter are really three. There are three sections that Paul has. We read the first one today, where he talks about his ministry burdens. And then he shifts in verse 6 of chapter 2 to being grounded in Christ because there was a false philosophy attacking this church. And so to, be, to resist that philosophy, we need to be grounded and settled in Christ. And then once we understand our relationship to Jesus, the third major section fleshes that out. It's application, live out your heavenly destiny. And what we're going to do today is zoom in on the first major section, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verse 24 through 2.5 couple of things about this section as we kind of orient ourselves to it. First, it, it's an autobiography of sorts because Paul uses first person pronouns over and over again. He's describing his ministry. And this section divides into two paragraphs. And this is one of those places in scripture where the chapter break actually works. <laughs> it's not in the middle of a paragraph. Uh, the v- verses 24 through 29 is the first section. Then chapter two, verses one through five is the second section. And both of these sections emphasize Paul's ministry and his labors on behalf of the believers. In fact, he uses the Greek word agonizomai or agony from which we get our English word. It doesn't quite mean the same thing. It's not that he was in excruciating pain, but that word means that he's laboring diligently and he's doing it on behalf of this church. But the other thing that these, that the section that we're going to study has is a a focal point on Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. If you're listening, when we did our reading a moment ago, you you remembered or probably spotted our key verse for the year, Colossians 2.3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the section that this comes from. As Paul preaches the gospel, he is exalting Christ and laboring for the believers. He's calling us to treasure Christ above everything else. 
And treasuring Christ isn't just a nice thing that we can put on notebooks like we did or nice things to say to one another. We need to treasure Christ more. That's true. But treasuring Christ will change everything about us. Everything. And it changes us sometimes in surprising ways. And Paul illustrates this surprising change in verses 24 through 25. Because he describes his ministry. And you would think that he's going to start by talking about preaching the gospel and traveling to all these places. But you know where he starts? He starts by talking about his suffering. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The first marker of Paul's ministry is that he suffers. And it's not just that he suffers, but how he refers to this suffering I think is pretty strange. He says that he rejoices in his sufferings. The word rejoice was used in Matthew 2 to describe the enthusiasm of the wise men when they saw the star of Jesus. They weren't just happy, they were ecstatic. So how can Paul rejoice in suffering? Is he a a masochist who delights in pain? (laughs) Certainly not. The secret is this. Because Jesus is his treasure, when Christ is advanced, he can rejoice even if he suffers. Remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was on a a cushy Mediterranean island enjoying the sea breeze in prison. (laughs) He was in prison, that's where he was. He was in jail because of his witness for Christ. And yet, as Philippians 1 says, even though I am in bonds, the gospel is advancing and so I'll rejoice. Yea, I will rejoice. That's countercultural. Why does Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Well, verses 24 through 25, it's still up there on the screen for you. There are two reasons why Paul rejoices. Verse 25 is a little easier to understand, so let's start there. Paul rejoices in his sufferings because he's a minister or an agent of the gospel to them. Paul's preaching ministry spread the gospel all over the earth. And sometimes he never visited places And the gospel came to them anyway. And that's exactly what happened with Colossae. He has never visited these people. He has never been to this church. And yet, one of his protégés, one of the people he trained, Epaphras, brought the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae. And many times, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Paul faced persecution because of his witness for Christ. In fact, it was rare that he didn't face persecution. His standard Modus operandi was to go into the synagogue and stay there until they beat him and kicked him out. And then he would stay in the town preaching to the Gentiles until he got run out of town. That was the way he lived and ministered. And yet through his suffering, the gospel came to Colossae. So Paul rejoices because his values are Christ-centered. Now the second reason Paul rejoices is in verse 24. And And in my opinion, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret. What does it mean when Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I asked 
uh, our staff, our other pastors that this week, they just kind of laughed and looked at me and didn't answer. And I was like, oh, thanks, guys. There's really no consensus as to what this means. I checked a number of commentaries, and there are at least six possible interpretations. <laughs> now, uh, instead of diving into every single possible angle and spending the next 30 minutes uh, putting you to sleep on this, there are two things I'd like to do. First, I'd like to eliminate one of the possibilities and then give you the big picture, okay? Because there are some people who claim that this phrase means that Jesus' suffering on the cross was not sufficient, and that's absolutely wrong. This interpretation that Jesus did not sufficiently pay for our sins and additional suffering is needed to complete Christ's saving work, this interpretation runs against everything the Scripture teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus' redemptive suffering is sufficient for salvation. There is nothing else to add to the work of Christ. We've seen that already several times in Colossians 1. So then what does it mean? It seems that Paul views his ministry as an extension of Christ's work as Paul brings the gospel to the world. This gospel advance does not come without suffering. And in the same way, anyone who represents Christ on earth and spreads the gospel will suffer. If you're not satisfied with that explanation, we can chat afterward. I can show you all the commentaries and send you on your way. Because ultimately, this is one of those moments where we just study hard and then say, Lord, I have to humble myself and say, I don't know. And it, it isn't real clear specifically what it means. However, we can step back and say, what's the big deal? What's the big picture? Paul, we know, is first rejoicing in his sufferings. He's doing that for two reasons. He's rejoicing in his sufferings because he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. And he's an agent of the gospel to the believers. The big picture is still clear. Paul rejoices in his sufferings for the gospel. How? How does Paul rejoice in his sufferings for the gospel? And how can you and I adopt this same attitude? This is what I'd like to concentrate on for the rest of our time today. And from time to time as we preach through the Bible, verse by verse, there arises a need to, to pause working through the verses and address a topic or a theme that's so important that we need to expand to other parts of Scripture. That's what this is. When was the last time you heard from an American pulpit preaching about suffering persecution for the gospel? The Bible talks about different kinds of suffering. There are like eight or nine different categories or types of suffering. Here, Paul is very specific. He is referring to persecution when a believer in Jesus is mistreated specifically because of his or her faith in Christ. The Bible also refers to this as suffering for righteousness' sake. And this is not an area that most American Christians have much experience in at all. In fact, we don't even talk about this. We don't talk about suffering for the gospel much at all. And I think there are two reasons for this. First, suffering for the gospel attacks the American idols of comfort and convenience. Our culture believes that my comfort and my convenience is my greatest good. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy 
eating a bowl of ice cream in my sweats on the couch watching a movie. Okay, I enjoy that. But when comfort becomes a controlling desire, we start sacrificing actually important things to maintain our comfort. Persecution has no place in the worship of this idol of comfort. To truly follow Jesus, then, we have to elevate Jesus above our comfort. Second, the second reason we don't talk about suffering for the gospel is because we don't experience it very much. It's not on our radars. We don't experience much persecution for our faith yet. Though we may feel safe from persecution, it is coming our way, and actually it's here already. It just looks different than other parts of the world. Every Friday, I receive a prayer email from Voice of the Martyrs, which is a Christian organization that reports on persecution of Christians all around the world. Two stories from this Friday's email illustrate the type of persecution going on in our world today. First, in the nation of Eritrea, or Eritrea, however you pronounce it, it's a nation in Africa bordering the Red Sea. This nation is a totalitarian nation. It's not real publicized that way. In 2002, it outlawed all religious groups that were not part of the official church, which, as you can probably guess, the official church is under government control. Hundreds of Christians were arrested by the government, and some have been imprisoned for at least 18 years, held in shipping containers in the desert. That's their jail. In many southeastern Asian nations, persecution comes from family and local villagers. Last April, a couple from Laos named Lerm and Dao accepted Christ, April 2nd, I think it was. Dao's father, who is the head of a nearby village, demanded that they renounce Christ. That's pretty standard. A, a person or a family comes to faith in Christ, their family immediately pressures them to renounce their faith. When they refused, this powerful man used his influence to kick them out of their village and confiscate their land so they have no income. They have no ability to eat. So they went to Lerm's family and tried to live with them, but, but his family refer, refused to take them in because his father feared losing his government job. They're now living in a temporary hut on the land of another Christian brother right now, today. Now, we don't see that level of persecution in America today. But is there mistreatment because of our faith going on right now in America? Absolutely, yes. We see persecution when believers lose their jobs or are passed over for promotion because of their faith. If they refuse to sign the LGBTQ plus agenda and their job goes away because of their convictions, that's persecution. We see it in legal battles. Just look at Jack Phillips, whose shop is just a stone's throw away from Masterpiece Cake Shop, who spent the last decade or so in court, being sued, I think, three different times. We see it in a growing attitude of hostility in our country toward evangelicals, people who believe the gospel and say that the Bible is the source of our authority. In fact, the Pew Research Center published a report this Wednesday that showed that 27% of U.S. adults have a negative view of evangelical Christians. One out of every four people in our country, according to this research, is negatively viewing people like us. In contrast, only 10% viewed mainline Protestant denominations negatively. That makes total sense. Because these other denominations are far more inclusive and tolerant. Their values are far more what our cultures is. 
The people who are out of step with our culture are people who say that this is the word of God and Jesus is the only way and that there is no salvation under heaven given among men unless it's the name of Christ. We shouldn't be surprised by this hostility. And no matter what form it takes, hostility towards believers will grow the more, the more secular our culture becomes. This isn't a trend that's going to be reversed. So we must be ready for persecution. And I don't preach this, I don't say this to frighten you, to cause you to go into a tailspin. This is not the boy who cried wolf, I hope. But if we are going to be ready to do what the scripture says and follow Christ, no matter the cost, then we need to prepare for it. And we may be unfamiliar with this theme in Scripture, but actually the Bible has much to tell us about persecution. In fact, every author of the New Testament, except Jude, because he only wrote 25 verses, every author addresses persecution. We need to change our view of suffering for the gospel and start preparing for it. And the single greatest way that you can prepare for suffering is to treasure Christ. Not your comfort, not your job, not your relationships. Identifying your treasure will clarify what you are willing to give up and what you are willing to do at any cost. Cole Richards, the president of Voice of the Martyrs, says this, the first step in preparing for persecution is identifying the things we will do at any cost. We will read God's word, pray, worship, gather with other believers and witness for Christ, and nothing will stop us from doing these things with willing and glad hearts. Because we do these things in obedience to the commands of our Lord, their worth is beyond evaluation. The value of everything else in this world pales in comparison, even our very lives. Treasuring Christ is the key. Because when we treasure Christ, that will change our view of suffering for the gospel. When Christ is your treasure, you will be able to rejoice in suffering for the gospel just like Paul did. Because suffering doesn't take away your treasure. If Christ is your treasure, that can't be taken away from you. But if your job is your treasure, that can go away. If your home is your treasure, that can be taken away. If your income is your treasure, that can be taken away. If your relationships with your family is your treasure, that can be taken away. But Christ remains. Suffering clarifies our view. Suffering can take away many things, but it cannot take away our Savior. So how can you rejoice in suffering for the gospel? There are four mindset shifts that you must make to have a Christ-centered vision of suffering. Four mindset shifts to make. And what we cover today is just a small portion of what the Bible teaches about persecution. I, even this morning, I was trimming, 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 because there's so much to talk about. And so my goal today is not to do an exhaustive study to do a theology of suffering and give you, you know, 15 pages of material. My goal today is actually very simple. I simply want you to change your view of suffering for righteousness' sake. I want you to have a change of mind. And that change of mind will be more aligned with the scriptures. Because these four mindset shifts will prepare you to suffer. So what are they? Number one, expect persecution. 
expect it. Expectation is the silent killer of many relationships. Why do young couples struggle when they get married? Because they both have expectations on the other person that if they don't deal with those expectations, there's going to be conflict and hostility. But when they talk about their expectations, sometimes they laugh over it. We've had many of those moments, haven't we? When I got, we, I, we realized uh, in the first couple of years of marriage that when we get tired at night, I start cleaning. Yeah, it's weird. But we talk about, all right, let's wind down, let's head to bed, it's 1030, and I start going doing the dishes, and she's like, what are you doing? That's the wrong direction, Jonah. <laughs> well, that was an expectation that I had that I wanted to get up the next morning and make things clean. Well, we had to talk through that, and once we did, we have a nice laugh about it. We need to expect persecution. Well, there are three reasons to do that. First, Jesus suffered, and so will his disciples. So will his followers. Did Jesus face any persecution when he was on earth? Yeah. Was it just his death on the cross that was persecution? No. In fact, from the earliest accounts in the Gospels, Jesus is already being opposed by the religious leaders. From the earliest stages of his ministry, he was opposed, and his ministry ended with a violent death. And the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that the pathway to glory that we love to talk about, this pathway to heaven, is lined with suffering. The road to glory is walked along the path of hardship. That's the road our Savior walked. If we are called by his name, should we expect a different treatment than he, than he received? John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. We follow Jesus even through suffering. Because the call to follow Christ is a call to suffer. Jesus doesn't do a bait and switch on us. He doesn't say, follow me and all your wildest dreams will come true. He's not a Disney movie in real life. Jesus says, follow me and deny yourself and take up your cross. Listen to what he says in Luke, Luke 9. The son of man must suffer many things, that's talking about himself, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, immediately following that, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus' hearers that day knew exactly what he meant. The cross was not a, something that we put on our jewelry at that point in time. The cross was a method of execution that was brutal and painful, and good people didn't talk about it in public. And here Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die and rise, and if you want to follow me, you're going to have to as well. Suffering before glory is the Christ-like way. The cross leads to the crown. But we should expect persecution because living godly will bring persecution. This is a clear teaching from the Bible that helps set our expectations. In fact, if we don't, if we are not persecuted, that should be more surprising to us than if we are. 
godly people will be countercultural, so they should expect persecution. That was true in the first century Roman Empire, and it's true in 21st century America. Jesus said in Luke 21, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, we love to talk about the promises of God, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that his mercies are new every morning. This is actually another promise of God. We don't usually put this in like, you know, children's lists of 10 verses to learn. You know, 10 promises of God to learn. Number one, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But it, it's actually a promise. So if, if you're being persecuted because of your faith, you're actually, you're actually doing something right. Now, we don't go seeking it, okay? We don't go after, and, and we're not jerks to people, and then when they say you're a jerk, we say, see, I'm being persecuted. That's not what we do. We live out our faith, and we expect it. In other parts of the world, basic discipleship for new converts involves teaching about persecution. Like before they start talking about all the cool things that their church does on Sunday morning, they talk about persecution. Why? Because it's just going to come. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs does a, a monthly newsletter. I picked one story out of like four that I could have. Ma Lai Wan, as you can guess, lives in Southeast Asia. She experienced persecution as a teenager. She was kicked out of her home at the age of 16. She was kicked out of her home at the age of 16 because she wouldn't renounce her faith. For eight years, she lived with other people, tried to make a living, found a Christian man to marry, invited her, her parents to the wedding, and over the course of that event, her father came to faith in Christ. Eight years of persecution. Yet here's her attitude towards opposition. This is what she says, quote, persecution? Oh yes, of course it's part of our faith. It's what the Bible says. We will face persecution from those that do not like us. We must be patient through this. She learned the reality the Bible teaches. Persecution will come, so expect it. And if you expect something, you won't be surprised when it happens. And if you expect it to come, then you'll be prepared for it. The second mindset shift is that though persecution may hurt us, we really have nothing to fear. Jesus has taken the teeth out of it. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Jesus conquered it all. So why are we afraid of it? Yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit. If we're beaten for our faith, that, that physical pain hurts. But, but there's so much more beyond that. Why shouldn't you be afraid of persecution? Well, first, suffering can't separate you from Christ. Nothing can separate you from your treasure. He is with you all the way. No insult, no prison cell, no job loss, no pain inflicted on your body can take Jesus away from you. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, here it is, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, nothing, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death can take you away from Christ. Actually, according to the Bible, death brings you closer to Christ. Again, we don't go seeking death. But if we are faced with death, ultimately the experience of passing through the short-term pain brings you and ushers you into glory. That's what we say we love anyway. 
you're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> that's a big mindset shift. Yes, it is. It's hard for me too, okay? I don't want to die. I'm going to live a nice long life. I want to be comfortable. I want to see my kids grow up. But ultimately, if Christ is our treasure, we have nothing to be afraid of. Your enemies, second, can't actually harm you. The world's thinking has been the same for literally thousands of years. If we hurt Christians, they will give up. That's been their strategy. We're going to hurt them. We're going to push them. We're going to afflict them. They'll give up. And what happens every single time? The stronger the persecution, the more the church grows. Early church fathers said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's absolutely true. You want to know where the church is growing most rapidly in our world today? China, Iran, Sub-Saharan Africa. These are not places that have religious liberty. These are places that are strictly and severely persecuting the gospel. You know what God's doing in those places? Jesus is building his church. That's what he's doing. Matthew 10, 28. Those, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Though our enemies may afflict, inflict a measure of pain, that's it. That's all they can touch. They can't touch your eternal destiny. We also should not underestimate the power that Jesus brings to us. He enables us to face persecution. Jesus walks through our suffering with us. He doesn't abandon us to the lions. One huge fear is that when we're challenged for our faith, we won't know what to say or how to respond. And what Jesus says is so comforting. He promises us wisdom to respond. Therefore, Luke 21, 14 and 15, therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And if we had another hour, I would tell you story after story of church history where this came true. That simple peasants, uneducated people who had faith in Christ stood before kings and priests and rulers and baffled them with their response. Because this is true. Another fear is that we will not have the strength to bear persecution. Jesus promises his power and his grace. These verses are familiar to us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, gladly, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, because Jesus gives us strength in our weakness, Paul says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You're not alone. When, when you go to work tomorrow and you face that other person that hates you because you're, you go to church on Sunday, you're not alone. Jesus says he's right there to give you the words to answer and the strength to endure. Jesus also gives us the strength and grace to treat those who persecute us with undeserved kindness. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And, and it's only the grace of God that can do that, because that's not a normal response. The third shift won't take place unless Jesus is your greatest treasure, and it's this. Count persecution for Christ as a privilege. 
as I was preparing for this, the first two, you're kind of like, okay, yep, yep, I think I can see that. This one, mm, this was hard. And yet I've been encouraged by the illustration, the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They're, they're there in the early church, months after Jesus left. They're doing miracles in the temple. Literally thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. And the religious leaders don't like that. And these religious leaders are the same men who killed Jesus. The same people. And they arrest the apostles and they don't know what to do with them. So one of them, a guy named Gamaliel, who educated Paul, Gamaliel gives some advice. He basically says, leave them alone. Because if this is of men, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you're going to be found fighting against God and you're not going to win anyway. So let them go. And I can see the, the, the frustration in the room because they know he's right, but they want to do something against these guys. So Acts 5.40 records what happens next. When they called for the apostles and beat them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And how do the apostles react? So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. These were the same guys who abandoned Jesus in the garden a few months earlier. And now they're rejoicing to suffer for Jesus. That sounds like an oxymoron to us. Suffering as a privilege? Well, suffering is a privilege. Three quick reasons. Suffering is a grace, is a gift of grace to believers. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted is the verb form of the word grace. We could translate it, for to you it has been graced. Paul links belief in Christ with suffering for Christ, and both are evidences of his grace. Second, suffering is a part of the privilege of knowing Christ. Later in Philippians, Paul talks about this again. In Philippians 3, he says that he gave up everything for Christ. He counts all things but loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Well, what's included with that? What's included with knowing Christ? Verse 10 explains, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Part of knowing Christ is experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. That means in suffering, there's a camaraderie with Jesus, a companionship with our Savior. And that means that through suffering, there's greater intimacy with Christ. And if you read about those who have suffered, they would say this over and over and over again. That in my suffering, I experienced the presence and grace of Jesus in a way I've never felt before. The church is the body of Christ. Colossians 1 says he's the head of the body. And just like your members, your extremities feel pain, and so your whole body feels pain, Jesus feels pain when any member of his body is in pain. And this is not something I'm just making up. This is vividly illustrated in Paul's conversion. Because on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never hit Jesus he was attacking Jesus' followers, and yet Jesus says that you're persecuting me. Jesus so closely identifies with his body that persecuting a believer is persecuting Christ. 
Finally, the fourth mindset shift allows you to rejoice in persecutions as we look past the present to the reward. Look past present persecution to the reward. And this is the kindness of our God. He doesn't just say, hey, have a stiff upper lip and figure it out and we'll see you on the other side. No, no, no. He shows great kindness in promising us a great reward for our troubles. So to look past our present persecution, we have to do two things. We have to revise our value system. We have to change what's important to us. That's why I keep saying Christ is our treasure. Because if Jesus is your treasure, all these other things fall away in importance. The believers who received the book of Hebrews experienced suffering, and yet the author could write to them and say, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. How in the world could they say, it's okay that we've got all of our stuff taken, knowing, believing that they had a better and enduring possession in heaven? The only way that you could watch your home be looted is by having a different kind of treasure. Your physical possessions don't matter. You're not defined by the things in your garage on the stuff on your back patio. Suffering has a way of changing what you value. Then lastly, rejoice over your eternal reward. Jesus taught this in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't rejoice in pain, we rejoice in the reward. Jesus called us to lay up treasure in heaven and suffering for Christ is one way that we do that. Peter Yasek learned these lessons about suffering firsthand. Peter is a Czech national who oversaw the Voice of the Martyrs work in Africa for about 15 years. And in December of 2015, he was visiting Sudan. This is before the, the partition or right after the partition, right around that same time. And he was looking to assess the persecution of Christians there in that nation and meet with the local church leaders, make contacts, and the government knew who he was and knew he was there, and they trailed him for multiple days, and they arrested him on his way back to the airport. They held him in prison for 14 months, and he was incarcerated at several places, all in very nasty conditions. This is in 2016, okay? They shared his first jail cell with members of ISIS, He told them about the terror attack in France and they started screaming and rejoicing. He said it was the most demonic, blood-curdling thing he'd ever been part of. He wrote a book, In Prison with ISIS. I read it recently, actually Kate did too. We were both challenged by it. And what I appreciate about it is he wasn't some super Christian bragging. He was very honest about his struggles and his fears and what the Lord had taught him through this. And yet, his testimony is convicting and inspiring. This is how he concluded the book. He had several pages in his conclusion, but I pulled three things here. This is what he had to say about suffering for Christ. First, I was so thankful to the Lord, deeply thankful for allowing me the privilege of suffering dishonor for the name of my Savior. I've experienced personally the privilege, his emphasis, not mine, the privilege of persecution 
and I'm only grateful for the opportunity to share even a little in Jesus' suffering. Here's a man who rejoices in his sufferings because Christ is his greatest treasure. And though the Lord may not grace you with a prison sentence that doesn't seem to be the route we're headed, you will face opposition and harassment if you stand for Christ. It's going to happen. You can expect it. And I pray that the Lord will grow our love for him so much that we'll be able to echo Peter's words. The Lord has granted to me the privilege to suffer for the sake of his name. And there is great joy in being counted worthy of that calling. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, we're uh, humbled, (laughs) challenged, overwhelmed. Persecution is not something we're used to, you know that. It's not something that we're looking for, you also know that. And it's something that, that a lot of us, myself included, wrestle with. It's a scary thing. But we know through the promises of our Savior, through the grace that he gives, through the encouragement of your word, through the spirit who indwells, that if you privilege us with the calling to be persecuted, to lose a job, to be harassed, to be sued for the name of Christ, then we will be worthy of it. And in a small, small way, we will identify with Jesus in his suffering. Change our thinking, we pray, Father. Change the way we view those who who are hostile toward us. May we not be afraid of them. May we not be angry with them. May we love them and bless those who persecute us so that our reward will be great in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him. Thank you.